Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast, All Jargon Aside. This is a monthly podcast where we invite guests to talk about the topics where we see advertising, technology, data and science intersecting. On All Jargon Aside, our aim is to try and cut through the jargon, myths and general noise and really get to the heart of a matter. I'm Graham Wilkinson, your podcast host, and today we're going to be talking about cybercrime. And our guest and subject matter expert today is... Uh, Bradley Deacon. I'm a senior investigator and qualified lawyer, uh, where I previously served over 14 years as a federal agent in our federal police, which is similar to your um, FBI in the United States. And I was lucky to be one of the first initial members back in 1993 to 1995 um, as a member of the Australian Federal Police Computer Crime Team. And we secured Australia's first successful prosecution and jail term for a computer hacker. So prior to my current role as a senior investigator uh, with the Australian government in the eSafety Commissioner's Office, uh, I was a lawyer with regards to cyber abuse matters um, and helping people that were being abused online. So and my current role is allows me to assist children and adults who uh, are suffering either cyber bullying or cyber bullying, sorry, or um, cyber abuse and it's a great team and uh, I must preface that the views here today are my own and not of my employer and also um, our team does not do cyber security but it's a massive passion of mine. Thank you for that Bradley you know I've been looking forward to uh, to, to speaking to you and uh, I'm sure that you've got uh, plenty of, of stories to share with us so just before we jump into things I, I normally like to ask our guests to, to share a crazy but true fact about themselves yeah, well, it's, I had a long, hard think about this. Um, and basically with the fun fact, I think at my age, in, in my mid-50s, uh, as an avid user of social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram and the like, and Yelp uh, and various other platforms, um, I think the early adoption and understanding of social media and in when I was around my mid-40s, and that was from basically the miracle on the Hudson, the plane uh, that landed on the Hudson River there in New York in 2009, I saw the power that somebody tweeted an image standing on the wing of the aeroplane about being in a plane crash. And I just saw that, wow, this, this platform and this whole social media is amazing because it gives you the ability to amplify news and messages globally in an instant and you can ability to promote a brand or, or self-promote. But And also, as a law enforcement background, it's a great area for open source intelligence. However, I could also had the vision to see that this could cause a problem with cyberbullying and cyber abuse. So I turned it into my adoption of social media into a career now as a cyber abuse um, and cyberbullying investigator and lawyer practicing in the space that really turned it around, turned the negative into, into a positive. And everyone compliments like, at my age, how did I pick up social media so easily? Yeah, I have to admit, Bradley, you are a much more competent practitioner of um, social media than, than I am. Um, your number of followers on Twitter speaks for, for itself. So thank you for sharing that story. And that's our guest today. The first vulnerabilities in computing were exposed in the 1970s and 80s as programs were developed to test the boundaries and capabilities of computers and their networks. In 1971, Bob Thomas invented a program called the Creeper, which traveled between terminals on the ARPANET, printing the words, 
I'm a creeper, catch me if you can. In 1972, Ray Tomlinson, who also invented email, by the way, built a self-replicating program and created the first computer worm. He also wrote another program called Reaper, which could be described as the first antivirus software. Reaper chased Creeper and would delete it. As computing has evolved, so too has the sophistication of cyber attacks and the protection against them. But it's worthwhile noting that the stakes have also gotten higher too. As we've transitioned more of our lives, business and money into databases and onto the internet. Cybercrime plays a large part in popular culture with TV shows and movies dedicated to a subject which now spans so many forms of crime, terrorism, ransoming, identity theft, fraud, and even bullying to name a few. And cybercrime and cybersecurity are big business. The cybersecurity industry was valued at $118 billion in 2018, and the US Department of Defense alone reported $8.5 billion in cybersecurity funding in 2019. How vulnerable are we to cybercrime and what is being done to fight it? Bradley, it would be great if you could kick us off by explaining what cybercrime is from your perspective. Cybercrime, uh, Graham, is uh, quite simply put, is that just the criminal activities carried out by means of computers on, or the internet. And it was originally known as computer crime. But because it's morphed into more than just uh, the perception of a desktop computer and has moved to telephones and, and, and networks and smartphones and the like, um, it's now, you know, termed uh, cybercrime. Now, what, what kind of crimes are we talking about? What are these crimes that are being committed? Well, like technology, um, it's changing every day. And that's one of the areas too with the law. Law has a hard time in keeping up with technology-based crime because of the, the speed of which the criminals can do it. But there's a range of um, crimes that are being committed. And that goes from being hacking, spamming, phishing, identity theft, distribution of online child sexual abuse material, uh, the distribution of material that advocates terrorism, ransomware, which is in the press a lot lately, um, and denial of service attacks, um, and things like are very costly. It's the cost of cybercrime, as you mentioned just prior. For instance, recently, the Ashley Madison example, where subscriber records were compromised uh, for that website prior to them listing on the stock market, and it lost hundreds of millions of dollars from not being able to list and the other thing about cybercrime, too, is not all hacking is obvious, right? Rogue states and countries are known to hack companies for IP secrets, financial business records and associated documents just to see how profitable a business is with a view to replicating the business. And a lot of this cybercrime goes undetected. And there's been cases where the hackers have been sitting on computer systems with, within a business for years, just gathering that valuable secrets and intelligence. In fact, I read an article, and I think I wrote a blog on LinkedIn about it uh, a couple of years ago, that uh, China, for instance, has 50,000 uh, people on the payroll just solely trying to penetrate computer systems around the world. It's it's kind of mind-blowing when you start to think about it. And I, I think it's obviously, you know, it's, it's a byproduct of advancement in technology, right? And it's that constant chasing of, of law and crime and, once you invent something, then someone's going to invent something that breaks it or steals it, um, and that's it's that constant kind of game, I suppose, that is being is being played. But when we think about about cyber crime, that it has to be coupled with cyber security, right? So how how can you secure yourself against these cyber crimes? So what exactly do we mean by cyber security? 
cybersecurity is, is evolving, and I'll, I'll give one example before I get into answering that part of the question. There's a recent case that just came out recently in Australia where a um, technology facilitated abuse has been carried out. Now, technology facilitated abuse is starting to become a, a bit of a trend, um, and it was reported that abusive messages were being sent to bank customers with one financial institution here in Australia identifying over 8,000 abusive messages sent to customers with $1 deposits. So someone's got around to thinking, well, I want to message my ex-wife because, you know, she's got custody of the kids or, you know, she dumped me or whatever. So they put a dollar into their account and then send a massive barrage of abusive messages attached with that deposit. So she gets that on her statement or on her phone when she checks her bank account. And, and this leads to a lot of stress for the person. And luckily, um, the bank has adopted the eSafety Commissioner's Safety by Design principles, um, whereby you incorporate safety within the computer system to pick up on, on word searches and that to eliminate those type of messages being sent and also blocking those type of customers that are using their system uh, for nefarious means. So back to the, the question, um, how to protect on cybercrime, we need to keep it really simple. The, the whole thing is, you know, simple security hygiene, like not sharing your passwords, using a password manager, uh, updating your phone and computer systems regularly with system upgrades and patches, and just simple positive messaging. You know, we've got to be careful not to desensitise consumers or instil fear and anxiety into their everyday lives. All in all, if simple messaging of cybersecurity is in place, it's an easier sell to the consumer. You don't want to put barriers up where they're not going to deal with you because you just make it too hard to deal with your company because of your security protocols. But in the same token, you don't want to leave yourself open for uh, security breaches. I'm really interested in what you were talking about before with that technology facilitated abuse. I think certainly as, you know, coming from a company that builds technology, quite often when we are QAing a piece of tech and we're looking for, for bugs in a system or, or something that doesn't display right, it, it it's very hard to put yourself in the shoes of somebody that's looking to do something so specific, like send a message through through a deposit in a bank account. I mean, when that bank was creating that system, they can't have possibly thought that anybody would abuse that particular feature of it um, to in turn abuse other people. So it's a very difficult thing to to plan for. But I think to, to what you were saying, you know, generally common sense prevails a lot of the time, right? Do common sense things, have your, your password managers, um, and 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 keep things kind of secret and and don't be going around sharing things with people. I, I still, you know, some of the safest things to be to be doing in this space, right? Absolutely, and and a lot of it is common sense principles, but it's just getting across to people that it is easy. It is easy to download a, a password manager. Some companies I know here in Australia and most likely in America too, and and various other countries. They're giving away password managers as a, as a loyalty gift to their customers and to enhance the security to deal with them. So I think that's a good strategy as well, because a lot of people are very reluctant to pay for anything on the Internet, as you're probably aware. Um, and it's just an area that they don't think it's important because it won't happen to them. And sadly, we're seeing it is happening. Um, we saw the way that the criminals have pivoted. Um, to do technology facilitated abuse, 
um, so quickly. I mean, who would have thought, as you said, uh, putting a dollar on accounting and sending an abusive message just to get that message across? Would it be right to classify that as a form of, of cyberbullying? And, and, you know, would you be able to talk to us a little bit about what cyberbullying is? Yeah, look, cyberbullying, um, for where I, I work, we have legislation um, to protect children um, with regards to cyberbullying, and, and it's a great piece of legislation, um, and that's separate from cyber abuse. So cyber abuse is for adults, and the Australian government, and we're working on um, looking at revising legislation to include adults for, for cyber abuse. At the moment, there's only uh, various other criminal offences by using like a telecommunication service to harass or menace, but it's very hard to get um, prosecutions in that area and they're handled by the police, not not uh, our area. But with cyberbullying, you, you can range from abusive texts and emails, um, hurtful messages and images or videos, which like you identified with that bank messaging, imitating others online, uh, exclusion, uh, excluding others online, so the friends group and the friend chat groups and things like that, and spreading nasty online gossip and chat to creating fake accounts to trick someone or humiliate them, which also happens a lot in the adult cyber abuse area as well, is people create fake accounts of their ex-partners, uh, of celebrities and the like, and send messages out to a range of people. Um, I kind of like the idea of the financial institutions, the know your customer type idea of social media companies getting to identify people through, you know, uh, verified records to say who they are and have a have a tick, for instance, uh, across all. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the social media companies, uh, I think, are shying away from that. And this is my opinion, um, shying away from that because it will deter people to sign up for their platform. But I think we need to move with the times down the road and, and have that trust um, to eliminate some of this because the anonymity with cyberbullying is probably one of the factors why uh, there is so much of it because everything is virtually anonymous. That whole idea of why platforms are maybe hesitant to, to kind of moderate in this space, let's call it, is, is partly driven by advertising revenue, right? I mean, if you can sell more eyeballs and people on your platform then, then um, you know, you're going to get more advertising revenue. The, the challenge is, and maybe it's the responsibility of the advertising industry, is how do you qualify whether those eyeballs are, are real? Are they fake? Are they bots? Um, are they even people worth targeting because they're doing, you know, they're, they're doing sinister things on the internet? And that's a tough, that's a tough question to answer, right? But, uh, you know, we'll we come back to the advertising side of it um, a bit later on. You've kind of taken us nicely through... You know, cybersecurity, cybercrime, and and cyberbullying, and and some other areas as well. But I think that's a hell of a lot, right? In in a short space of time, in the evolution of of computing, there's this we've now built up this huge bank of of crimes that are, are being committed on on this. How have we got to this point? And what are some of those most influential events that have kind of happened that that's got us to to this? This sense of vulnerability, this this sense of uh, you know maybe that that the internet is a a sinister place that we can go and do sinister things on. What are your views on on that? I think technology has evolved so much. I mean, you constantly read how now that the current smartphone has more computer capacity than what it took to land on the moon in in the sixties. 
I mean, that alone is mind blowing. Um, and we've become to be a, a age, I think, of uh, technology consumerism and where we want everything instantaneously. So not enough checks and balances are done um, with regards to uh, cyber security and cyber safety. Uh, everyone wants to get to market uh, as quickly as possible and be the first because, you know, lo and behold, as you know, you're first to market with something and within a few months, uh, there's another uh, platform or whatever that um, that is uh, released. And I, I look at cyber hackers um, and, and cyber criminals. Some of them are a bit like gamers in a sense is they're addicted to conquer the game and get to the highest level in the game. And unfortunately, a lot of the cyber criminals treat it as a game. Um, they don't see the damage that they're doing uh, with cybercrime. Uh, for instance, the, the first hacker that we uh, locked up in, in Australia, his defence was he, he hacked an ISP service um, and his reason, and a lot of hackers that I've talked to, said their reason was back in the 90s, we wanted a job at a, at a um, company, at a bank or whatever, to show them their vulnerabilities and they wouldn't listen to us because in the 90s, no one knew what cybercrime or computer crime was, as they called it then, and they wanted to get their message out there and by pumping their chest out saying, hey, I've just hacked you, this is what I've got, you need to hire me. Now, unfortunately, that's a crime. So a lot of them now would do it for a challenge, and this is where we, we run into an issue, and I call it like the Fort Knox principle. Um, as we know in the past there, Fort Knox has always been um, promoted as being the safest facility in the world. It's got half of the gold uh, bullion reserve stored there. And you can imagine if someone broke into Fort Knox, they would be a hero. And this is what uh, I think nefarious um, threat actors uh, look at doing to cybersecurity with vulnerabilities. They want to, if a company puts themselves out there and says, we are the most secure company in the world, no one can hack us, they will go to the nth degree. And in fact, some people put bounties on, on doing the hack and will pay money for someone who, who's, you know, conquered a system. And look, I think part of that comes from, I suppose, the heritage of computing, right? Where it's this idea of if you're a programmer, you want to build something, you want to break it, take it apart, build it better again. But, but that, that can also become pretty kind of nefarious quite quickly, right? In, in the way that, that you describe. What part do you play in, in this space now? I mean, essentially, what, what is your, your job and how does your job intersect with these kind of things? Well, in my day-to-day -day, um, employment, um, we, we help uh, children um, get cyberbullying material taken down. Um, the legislation says we have to, uh, the child has to wait 48 hours after reporting it to the social media companies. And they've been very good um, by when we go to them. So the child then comes to us if it's not taken down um, and lodges cyberbullying uh, report. Uh, and then we go to our, um, through our channels with the social media companies and do an informal takedown notice with them. And they, they've been really good in removing the material. That is deemed to be, it's got to meet the criteria of serious cyberbullying material. So that is one arm. And the other arm is the adult cyber abuse, where is we provide um, advice to people on how best to report to the social media companies, because there's no legislation for adults at this point in time. As I said, it may be changing. 
Um, and then what we do is provide them the tools on how to report it to the social media companies so that can get their message across that they've been targeted. And also we might refer them to um, counselling services because they're very distressed. Also, we'll break it down to how to simply go to a police station and report. Now, based on my law enforcement experience, I'm able to break that down and we've, as a team, developed a, like a template for the people to say, this is how you're going to get the officer to pay attention at the front counter. Because sadly, being an informer um, instructor at the police academy as well, law enforcement can only take so much information in at the academy and learn so much because they've got so much to learn. So we break it down for the victims to say you need to you know, create a timeline, you need to take screenshots, you need to uh, provide as much information of the person who you think is targeting you, and you need to package up the material. So like a mini brief of evidence in a sense, and hand that to the officer. A lot of people just go to the front counter of a police station and say, this person sent me a mean message. And as an adult, uh, the police just look at that and say, well, what do you want us to do about it? So we give them the, the tools, the coping mechanisms and the, and the tools on how best to report it. And it's a very satisfying area. And, and you know, we're a safety net for the children. It's, it's, it's good. And we have, it's a very satisfying job. Um, and then, as I said, the cybersecurity part is me personally, where I attend a lot of um, incubators and a lot of startup uh, events and, and just talk to people in the space. And we talk about cybersecurity and things like that um, separately to my day role. I suppose I'm keen to, to to kind of understand a bit more about when you're meeting at some of these incubators and you're meeting with technology companies and, and, and people like that, you're getting this kind of, you know, you're getting this view that is fairly agnostic and, and you you know, quite often in technology, we're, we're, we're blinded by the, the thing that we're focusing on and we can't see anything beyond that. So it'd be interesting to get the view of somebody that's traversing the ecosystem. Um, but where do you think the greatest vulnerabilities are in the, the technology ecosystem right now and, and where do you see them potentially being in the future? There's a range of things there that I, and that I see. Um, first thing first is the laws, not keeping up with technology. And, and that's no, through, no fault of lawmakers. It's just it is, law's always been a slow process to adapt, right? Yes, you can get some emergency legislation in, uh, and then there's a lot of times then and there might be errors with that or, there, you know, there'll be, um, when it's applied, uh, there'll be appeals and, and, and things like that. So lawmakers have to get it right and policymakers. So first of all, it's the laws not keeping up with technology. Uh, the virtual private networks where anyone can on their phone can, you know, say they're in Switzerland or bounce, bounce off um, the networks around the world by masking their identity. End-to-end encryption is another one, and that's in the press a lot at the moment uh, with federal agencies wanting access. You know, this is the United States Department of Justice and the like, all wanting access, um, and there's a lot of pushback on that um, and because there's an inability of law enforcement to access some of those messages or content. Again, like I said earlier, it's it's the know your customer. We, we really need um, to be able to uh, verify who's on the system and for people to have trust. And the other area too is defamation laws. You know, they are changing all the time. There's a recent case here where a dentist had a a bad review on his uh, dental practice and his work. He's claiming that uh, the person never visited his practice 
And um, from the last reading I had of the matter, uh, he had a victory for Google to identify who left that review. Now, that, that'll open up a whole can of worms in, in regards to people sledging businesses online with, without any fear of uh, getting caught um, if this comes to fruition. So, yeah, definitely the defamation's an area as well. And I think the world over, we're looking at what is defined as a publisher uh, and things like that. And I suppose even defining what what defamation is in a in the modern sense, like is it, is it giving somebody a bad, a bad review? Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not being a legal expert, I don't know the answer to that, but obviously Google opening up and identifying somebody is one thing that is, you know, that has implications, but the other is, redefining or, or defining defamation for modern technology i don't know if that's something that is happening that is a good question i think it's a a very important area to watch uh in the next uh, say 18 months or so uh, because i can see a lot of a lot of work in this area and a lot of material coming before the courts uh, in relation to that i mean do you see one of the other challenges as being the fact that it it's not a local problem it's not a national problem it's not even a regional problem. It's a it's a global problem, right? And how do you pin somebody down to a, a location? It's not like you can stake out the bank and wait for the wait for the bank robber to turn up. Like the, these people can be on the other side of the world and they'll still doing as much damage as they would if they were like around the corner from you. Absolutely. Look, and, and lucky uh, from being a member of our federal uh, agency. Um, so having a lot of experience in, in uh, transnational crime where I've worked over in Hong Kong and, and Malaysia and the like, um, and I've gone through all the instruments required to obtain evidence from those countries and also attending those countries, um, cybercrime is often a transnational crime that crosses multiple international borders where a host of privacy laws and treaties exist with some countries and some countries don't facilitate inquiries by law enforcement or intelligence agencies. Then you've got the complex legal protocols, such as the mutual assistance in criminal matters uh, legislation um, that also come into play. And if countries are signatories, they can take months to execute to gain the evidence required for an investigation and, and prosecution. Now, of course, these can be sped up with, you know, severe um, matters that are, you know, time pressing for life to protect life and limb. But generally, a lot of it can take a long time and your investigators need to know um, what is required. And unfortunately, the people need to know too, I think, um, because a lot of people say, oh, who's behind this or who's behind that? It is a lot of work to get those uh, information out of big companies um, because of the privacy laws based in the jurisdiction where the company's based and everything else. So it com comes down to identifying the end user to satisfy the requisite burden of proof in criminal matters. And we go back to the burden of proof in criminal law, and that's beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's where everything has a hard time, is you've got to prove it in, in the court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you for that, Bradley. That gives a kind of really, I suppose, comprehensive view of where you see the the biggest challenges that, that we'll be um, facing or, or are facing right now and, and it's always hard right to predict even when you understand the space because obviously technology moves so fast that if, if you can't predict the technology then it's pretty much impossible to predict what what issues and, and maybe crime may arise from it i kind of want to move on to the the specifically the advertising and, and marketing space and and get your your view on 
when you're thinking about cybercrime and cybersecurity and even cyberbullying, where do you think we have the biggest vulnerabilities in, in the advertising and marketing industry right now? I think fear is, is the greatest vulnerability in the advertising and marketing space. Um, as a lot of people in the cybersecurity industry describe the risk to obtain recognition for the role they play, and they instill fear in a lot of people. Now, I'm not saying all, all vendors uh, do that. Um, it's the same with people that get up and say, social media is bad, it's, it's evil. Yes, there is bad components, but I think if we educate our children um, and we educate our adults even on how to use it, how to use it safely, how to use it for positive gains like I have since I adopted it uh, in, in 2009. You can turn the negative into a positive, which is my mantra at all times. Um, we, we've got to get away from that fear. So what you have in the advertising space is a reflection of risks which we have in the physical world and it, it's cyber security is over-dramatized to instill fear into the consumer and the, and the marketplace. And as I said earlier, simple security hygiene is is the simple message and if we can adopt that and get that messaging across that would be good um the other the other concerns too is um trolls you know we with the advertising uh, space and everything else um you will get people that will troll your account and and the best way to deal with uh, with trolls is is basically give them no reaction or attention they're generally narcissistic so you just do not engage with trolls whatsoever. Do not talk about them to your friends on social media because the message could get leaked back to the troll, which will inflame them. And then take the basic strategies of screenshotting, blocking them, delete, report to the social media service and create a timeline if it's ongoing. And that's important because if you need to go to a lawyer or if you need to go to a police agency, you've got all that packaged up nicely. Um, but it's, it's the hold back on reacting. And I think if advertisers and marketing uh, people can train um, their their clients uh, to do the same um, when they're attacked online, I think will go a long way. That's great. That's great advice, to be honest. And I, I think uh, you know I'm I'm aware of the challenges that are faced in in advertising and marketing around social media specifically, and how you you know how do you actually manage somebody's social profile for them or how do they manage it them, themselves as a brand i think one of the things one of the areas it does bleed into and is maybe in opposition is if you're having to take screenshots which include usernames handles things like that certainly in the US and Europe where privacy laws are strict and becoming stricter. Even including somebody's Twitter handle in a presentation without their permission is it's not allowed. So I think it's that it's that fine balance between where does somebody go from being having a genuine gripe with a brand to at what point does it tip over to be to becoming troll like or or even the point of defamation that we were we were kind of making before when we also think about about brands and and this is a, a really kind of relevant topic and has been for some time and a, a term certainly in the us that is banded around a lot this idea of fake news well, how do you feel like fake news may kind of negatively impact the, the brands that are advertising or, uh, or have marketing materials? Fake news is definitely a problem, and we know a famous person who's, who's famous for calling that out. Um, it's, it's an issue that um, 
we've had this, as I said earlier, appetite for instantaneous news consumption. We want to we want to get that news, and, and people want to deliver that news, and that then gets us to start trusting what we're reading on our on our social media feeds, on our news feeds, and the like. What I like seeing now is some schools that I'm aware of and universities uh, are just talking about fake news and running assignments in class and everything around fake news to bring that to attention of, of students and, and adults alike. Um, and it's also good to see there's companies now being formed that provide fact-checking services, which I think is fantastic. The only trouble with fact-checking services is it takes time. To, to do that fact checking um, and to do it 100%, you know, correctly in a sense. So back to the, you know, this appetite for instantaneous news it, with fake news, it's very hard to do the fact checking in a really timely manner, but it, it can be done and, and it is being done by companies. And I think AI will play a, a huge role on that in, in the future to speed up the process of checking fake news. That's my opinion there, that AI will definitely be able to filter through the, the fake news. You just touched on a on a topic I was going to bring up, actually, which is kind of um, artificial intelligence and what part do you think it has to play in cybersecurity now and, and into the future? AI um, will definitely, as we know, will introduce automation and orchestration. When you look at it with the term orchestration, where some of the known threats can be identified and reduced through automation by using that AI. It will basically provide the orchestration in sync, right, to provide all the actual tools you use to reduce the threat. So it allows the learning of the threat reduction tools to work automatically with AI, where under AI they can work coherently together and in sync. So just imagine a conductor of an orchestra who is the owner of a cybersecurity risk for a company, and he uses individual musicians playing an individual instrument to stop the threat. And this is where AI automates the risk and like an orchestra, will bring it all into play and play in tune and in sync, just like the fine orchestra. So as you can see, AI, I think, will allow um, companies to scale their cybersecurity systems um, to tackle the the huge threat. I I agree with that. And that's a really nice kind of um, picture that you you painted there. Just finally on kind of the ad space, Certainly, ad fraud and brand safety is a, a topic that's been very hot in our industry for a few years now, and and I still don't necessarily think that there's a silver bullet for for it. But what what part do you think cybersecurity has to play in this this world of ad fraud and, and brand safety? Well, cybersecurity is is fairly uh, important, definitely. I'd say in this space. Uh, especially brand, we'll touch on brand ambassadors first and influencers. Um, you know, they may have questionable content that is published on the internet by social media, by fake accounts that are unverified, and such in- misinformation can be very damaging to a brand and very hard for a brand to recover from. Uh, then we move into uh, brands not doing due diligence on the influencers or brand ambassadors in a rush to sign up that person who they believe will be the next major influencer. And there could be images from their past that are online and and things like that. And it's very hard to recover from that. So I think brands need to uh, do their risk assessment and apply basic risk assessment principles uh, and risk management principles on the potential for the influencer or brand ambassador that also may attract trolls. 
So you've got to be careful who you select because that person may have a target on their on their head to be attacked in the future by trolls and be attractive to trolls. So it's very hard for brands to, to sift through to so say who is going to be a safe person to promote us. Uh, then we go down to digital billboards um, as a technology uh, threat. You know, billboards are everywhere now, as we know. They they rely on technology. Digital is fantastic, but they have so many endpoints and and network vulnerabilities for the data that can be compromised. So you could just imagine if you had a few hundred billboards around a city and pornographic images or racist messaging started being substituted across dozens of them simultaneously, right? And usually these type of events would happen after hours. It's usually the Christmas Christmas Eve or Easter or things like that. So if you live in a high-rise apartment building, just think of it like your, your elevator uh, crashes on a, on a Christmas Eve and, of course, hardly any staff are available to either fix it or repair it. This is where you know people will get smart and could hack at those particular times, and your that messaging could be up on those billboards um, for hours, if not days. Yeah, I mean, and you take it a step further, and you start saying, okay, well, you know, technology with with um, endpoints and vulnerabilities. You start thinking about Alexa and Google Home, and you know, and those stories about people who have been locked out of their own apartments and held to ransom over. Um, you know, somebody that's hacked their security system and, and now won't let them in their own apartment. I mean, it's not it's not so many steps to go from what you just described to to that kind of um, ransoming of, of physical kind of space that, that you think is is not vulnerable. But but to be honest, it, it probably is. And it's it's one of the most vulnerable areas that we have right now. Absolutely. I mean, that that's a whole episode in itself. Um, the Internet of Things. That is totally a whole a whole area that has issues, um, and it all comes back to the, as I said, the e-safety's package on um, safety by design. If you do it from the outset, it's and build security in, it's easy, right? In the sense of think about a, a car now. You have a motor vehicle right now, and it's all got a seatbelt, and we all through um, conditioning, we put that seatbelt on before we start driving. You would not have a car manufacturer right now, apart from being illegal, um, design a motor vehicle without a seatbelt. And I look at the safety by design as the same principles as that, right? If you build everything into the Alexas and that, so you have all the automated uh, updates for software uh, advancements and then patching and all that, that are fully automated uh, through the system, you're you're reducing the threat somewhat. I suppose using that example of a car and and you know legislation being in place that stops car manufacturers from I suppose not adhering to things like not having a safety belt. Do you do you think that there would be a time in the future where you know maybe legislation is is passed somewhere around the world that means that people who are responsible for building software have to build certain things in by um, by default that will protect people? That's a great question. I haven't looked that in depth, but I can see the logic behind that. I, I could see, really see the logic to say that they need to look at the, the car analogy that I just used of seatbelts, and you're right, apply that to companies to make sure that all the safety and security measures are installed into systems prior to their release. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Maybe we should put it forward to uh, to some government. <laughs> yeah. There's also the ethical 
um, issue too that I want to touch on is in relation to you know being the proud owner of the of the Volvo motor vehicle uh, in in the in the 90s driving a, a 76 Volvo there's a lot of ethical issues there is Volvo is always well known for the safest cars on the market back in the day and people bought those cars based on that safety right and right now we have these automated vehicles and they're just not i don't think are sharing the the technology to to say that we're the safest vehicle on the road because volvo had the market share because of their safety inbuilt safety features now if i'm designing a, a fully automated car i don't want to give other companies the market edge of saying well this is what you need to do to make sure that the vehicle can't be hacked which we've known there's some vehicles recently that have been hacked while they're driving some have missed uh, tractor trailers turning in front of them and crashing into them uh, and things like that so that comes down to an ethical issue you know do we go like the banks did in the 80s and share best practice for physical security so our staff and buildings are safe and we do that with our competitors or do we keep everything close to our chest and not share the, the best practice on, on cyber security for automated vehicles. And it comes down to an ethical question. You know, it's an important question, Bradley, and I think it's something that it's not a new question in, in, in the technology world because there's obviously people that, that strongly believe in, in the open source nature of, of some platforms and there's people that, you know, have built entire business models upon keeping these things proprietary. But it is a it's a very, very interesting ethical question. We've covered so much in a short space of time and, and we've kind of done a whistle stop tour of what is cybersecurity um, through to some examples of it and, uh, you know, a dive into what Bradley actually does and then some of the implications to to advertising. So I think that we've covered a lot there and potentially there's a there's a future episode where Bradley comes back and we dive into into some of these topics in more detail. So every episode we like to have a bit of fun and test our guests on their knowledge of a topic with a lightning jargon round, which this week we're calling Decipher This. Bradley, you'll be given a question with multiple choice answers. Are you ready? I am, but I've got to warn you, at every pub trivia session that I go to, I, I have the least amount of answers for the team. <laughs> I can't imagine you go to many cybersecurity trivia pub quizzes. Yeah, no, but uh, yeah, my, my ability at quizzes is, is yeah not up there. Well, well, we'll see what we can do. So first question is, when was the first computer virus discovered? Was it A, 1971, B, 1965 or C, 1980? I would have to take a guess at about 1980. Ah, oh, you see, if you'd have been listening at the outset on my introduction, I specifically said 1971. So oh. believe it or not, the idea of a computer virus preceded computer networks. So mathematician John von Neumann predicted the idea in, in the late 1940s, but it wasn't until 30 years later before somebody actually created one. Second question, what is the name of the first universally known hacker group? Is it A, Faceless, B, Anonymous, or C, Malsec? I'll go with Anonymous. 
Correct. So Anonymous was the first universally known hacker group. The, the group has no leader and represents many online and offline community users. And, and together they exist as a anarchic, digitized global brain. If anybody's watched V for Vendetta, they'll be aware that they, they wear the mask of Guy Fawkes. Third question. What does EPP stand for? Is it A, Endpoint Protection Platforms, B, Endless Protection Programs, or C, Endpoint Platform Programs? Endpoint Protection Programs. That that actually wasn't even an option I gave you, but to be honest, the words were also close to each other. So it was Endpoint Protection Platforms, which is close enough to Endpoint Protection Programs. So I, I think that um, Bradley gets the, gets the point there. I win that on appeal. Beautiful. <laughs> Question number four. A group of computers that is networked together and used by hackers to steal information is called A, Rootkit, B, DDoS, or C, Botnet? Botnet. Correct. Oh, you're on a roll now. So last question. Criminals access someone's computer and encrypt the user's personal files and data. The user is unable to access this data unless they pay the criminals to decrypt the files. This practice is called A, Ransomware, B, driving, or C, decrypt hacking? Ransomware. Correct. So I think that's that's four out of five. When I come back to New York on the way to, to finish my fellowship at Yale for the cybersecurity forum, uh, I think I'll pick you up, Graham. We'll go to the pub and do a, uh, a cyber um, uh, pub quiz. Definitely, definitely. Well, well, look, there's that many niche pub quizzes in New York. I'm sure that there is a cybersecurity trivia trivia night somewhere. Yeah. That's nearly all we've got time for today. But before we go, I'd like to ask you one more question, Bradley. Yeah. You must have seen the negative impact that cybercrime has on people and individuals. And it, it's often easy to forget the the wonders of technology, the internet, email, social media, etc., and and what comes along with that. What do you see as the most positive aspect to being in such a connected society that's that's driven by this technological advancement? As long as you use it carefully and as long as you apply basic uh, security protocols and safety online um, strategies. I think connectivity. I think to see older people um, connecting with you know their grandchildren uh, across the world. We're in a globalized society. Uh, I, I think that is probably the best that we can have that connectivity where people aren't alone anymore. They're not sitting in their retirement village with no no visitors from family who might be a thousand miles away. They can digitally and uh, via video calls connect with family and that's a nice thought to to finish the the show on so that's all we have time for today i'd like to thank bradley for joining us as a reminder all jargon aside is a monthly podcast to keep your eyes and ears peeled for our next episode if you'd like to get in touch with us about anything we discussed today, you can reach us at alljargonaside at kineso.com or use the hashtag alljargonaside. Or you can reach me on Twitter at Wilkie Graham, which is W-I-L-K-I-G-R-A-H-A-M. And if you like our podcast, remember to rate, review and share us. I've been your host, Graham Wilkinson. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>